I couldn't help but constantly contemplate and reflect on my experiences. I mean, still, I, I'm reflecting on experiences for 20 something years ago on a regular basis. And so when I have a big experience, it's like my being kind of chews on it all the time. And then I found a lot of integration and resonance with authors because the people around me were having these experiences or deep into kind of spirituality. I did a lot of reading. And so whether it was psychedelics or other paths like meditation, I would read books and see their, their kind of transcendental experiences. And this is Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, with Whitney and Jenkins. Hello and welcome to the 65th episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and the challenges and the rewards that come from following it. This week I have with me Jahan Hamsisade, PhD. He completed his dissertation on psychedelics in the Philosophy, Cosmology and Consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. His book, The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness, and Evolution of the Planet, an Integral Approach, was published by North Atlantic Books and distributed in the spring of 2022 by Penguin Random House. He earned his master's in consciousness and transformative studies from John F. Kennedy University and his bachelor's from the University of Arizona with a major in philosophy and minors in physics, psychology, and mathematics. Aside from his academic work, he has undergone several major trainings, including graduating from the Hakomi Somatic Psychotherapy Program and training for years with the Mazatec mushroom tradition. He assisted the Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy Certificate training at CIIS for two years, and he mentored at the Center of Consciousness Medicine. He is currently a content advisor for the Synthesis Psychedelic Guide training and works as a facilitator for legal psilocybin mushrooms ceremonies in Jamaica with Atman retreats. As I am someone who is currently getting my PhD in humanistic psychology, my discussion with Jahan, I felt was really resonant with all of the things that I'm doing, uh, but also really enlightening as far as what is currently going on in the industry of psychedelics as they are emerging. And also to get a male perspective, as I had previously Jen Chesick on to give her female perspective when it comes to psilocybin. I'm really excited about this conversation and the wisdom that Jahan provided. So without any more blabbing from me, here's Jahan. I mean, that, I got chills. That's amazing. That thrills me. Just, uh, I love that area. You know, as a, I don't know if you saw my book, Abraham Maslow has been a huge thinker for me. And you know, so humanistic psychology is, I think, super on point. And I don't think there's been enough on creativity, especially the intersection of psychedelics and creativity, because I think there's just so much there. So I, I love that that's the angle, you know, what you're studying Absolutely. right now, the angle he might be coming from. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's so much potential within those two subjects to like be merged together and explored that hasn't been touched upon. So yeah, so but this conversation is mostly about giving you a platform to share your story, because it's really going into following the inner authentic voice, and how yeah. you followed that along your journey and like the challenges that you perhaps come across. Sounds good. That's good. Yeah. I'm super happy to go into the theory and academics part too, if you want to. I'll yeah. go anywhere you want with the conversation. Like we really, I mean, I, I normally ask the people, yeah, like what's their angle? What's their platform? What are they wanting? Just so I can really attune to them. And then I normally say, I mean, you've already said it now to trust their own inner curiosity. So the conversation's like really alive, organic and fresh, but I feel really good about that here. So <laughs> yeah, that's it. Excellent. 
So I usually start off a conversation with this like one question and I find that it kind of like is a springboard to lead to the next places. And that is, when is the first time that you can think of that you realized that you had this inner voice of your own and that mm. you were able to follow it? Mm -hmm. That's good. There was like a single defining moment of my life and it had to do with psilocybin and hence why I went on to study it. I was 18 years old and I was going to go see my favorite band Tool play for the first time. And on the way to the concert, somebody I just met on the way gave me a handful of mushrooms. And I took a meth. That was going to be a really exciting day. And it's been the single most important day of my life. It's uh, We're talking about 21 years ago, and I still think about it almost every day. And I was an atheist at the time, suicidal, depressed. Um, and I'd spent about seven months walking, like seven or eight hours a day, trying in a very existential place. What's the point of life? How did the universe emerge? What's space and time? Uh, who am I? Like the really big stuff that you're kind of pushed into when you're kind of in a suicidal state. You're like, why do I want to be here? What's this all about? What's, you know, and everybody's kind of just going along playing this game. And it's just, I felt like there was a, a deeper background to all of this. So I think all that kind of synthesized or integrated partly in this moment. And as the psilocybin started to come on, I started to have this feeling that I'm about to die, you know, which was pretty intense. And the, the, the sense of, of an ego death experience is pretty archetypal when it comes to psychedelic space. Um, but for like 15 minutes, I felt like my entire world was about to dissolve. And so I had a lot of fear, but also had a lot of curiosity. And so I surrendered to the experience to let it happen. And once I crossed this threshold, it felt like my consciousness expanded to take up the entire arena. I felt like thousands of people and a voice arose in my consciousness and it said, Jahan. And there was the recognition at the time that this is God was something I felt was impossible. And I'm using God here in a very large sense that there's just one being um, in the more of like a Hinduist sense. It's, it's kind of a sense of Brahman that we're all in this one dream and God is each individual person and same with like a Buddhist sense of like a self. And so, you know, it'd be our deepest, truer selves behind all the personalities, but, you know, it, it kind of made contact and I was like, is this real? It said, yes. And I just started bawling and I started just, I cried hard for like an hour and a half through this entire experience. And it said that love is the most important thing in the universe. Miles after that is learning. Everything's so insignificant, you know, compared to these two things that we'll never have to worry about the complexity of anything else. And so in many ways I would consider God or like this intuitive voice, this inner voice is God's like love with a voice, you know, and there's a deep sense at that time that loves our deepest compass. That's the deepest intelligence. And, you know, it, it kind of, let's say with Joseph Campbell's kind of things, a great mythologist, like follow your bliss, you know, there's a sense of you follow your passion and excitement, it leads you to the right place. And so that experience and what I learned from it became the main way I navigated life and how I made most of my decisions. Yeah, that's so. This was at 18 years old, which I feel like yeah. is really cool to like have that discovery with psychedelics. What was your environment when you were experienced the psychedelics? If you don't mind me asking, um, totally. Yeah. I just had graduated from my school a couple months ago, and 
you know, as I mentioned, it was a completely different worldview before and after, because again, being an atheist and everything kind of disconnected, like, you know, I didn't have this deep sense of interconnection with everything. And so this brought that, that spirituality is real, the consciousness pervades everything, you know, and so it kind of reignited a deep sense of passion of learning and a sense of purpose in my life. And so about a month or two after this experience, I made the commitment to get my doctorate, which was like a very long journey, you know, and I came into school kind of on fire before this experience, I would have probably just focused on finances, you know, like, you know, when this world we have to survive, you know, why not focus on resources. But then I came in more of a like, well, let's learn. And so I came in as a science major, someone as a neuroscience major for a while, then a physics and math major for three years. And then another mushroom journey said, focus on mysticism. And I'm like, mysticism is not even a profession it's not a major you know but it kind of showed me that would be kind of the expansion of my soul and my path while physics kind of would lead more to like a, a kind of death and that's just because i love physics but mathematics and physics only kind of explains a layer of reality you know not like the wholeness or totality it's not like a direct experience of the divine or oneness um so the container was coming out of one transitioning from one phase of my life into another you know, and then I'd come in with a lot of uh, trauma. My parents were both immigrants, a mom from Mexico, dad from Iran, different cultural backgrounds. They were illegal for a long time. And school had been hard. I had ADD. I was picked on a lot for being different. And so there was a lot of turbulence. And in many ways, I know you shared that what a young age to kind of have that experience, but I kind of also happened because I needed it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So also like the extreme of like atheism I'm not sure how we like you would define that but like is that like not really believing in anything you know that was the stance at the time far more rational and scientific and you know if I didn't experience and it wasn't completely provable I kind of wrote it off as as make-believe that being said my grandfather in Mexico who I never read, met was a, like a medium and he would like spirits enter his body. And we had these photographs probably from the 1950s that he asked these spirits to materialize so photos could be taken of them. And so even as a teen, I would see these photographs. They were Photoshopped, 1950s in Mexico, right? Of these humanoid forms looking like they're made out of like smoke, but standing around him while he's meditating. And so there was some level of evidence and rationality that something like that exists, um, but still didn't know how to make sense for it. I didn't have the paradigm, like the large container to make sense of it. And mostly it was really through the help of psychedelics that I really experienced that there's like this interpenetration of different levels of reality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it seems like um, that one moment kind of like showed you like even uh, your diamond, mm -hmm. your, your calling in life. Yeah. yeah. It's that sense that we're all born with some kind of purpose. Like if we believe this idea of souls, like, you know, while we're here in this rational mind, we generally do things with intention. You know, we go to work with, we know what we're doing. We have some kind of sense of purpose, even though we're always looking for something deeper. And so if I'm a soul, probably with more capacities, maybe the knowledge of lifetimes, I'm probably coming into this life with some kind of intention. There's something I want to carry out, some kind of purpose. You know, and so I, I love this idea of a diamond or a genius, you know, this kind of inner calling that we have inside that we're kind of searching for and that will bring a deeper sense of satisfaction and meaning in our lives where we really follow it. Yeah. So so how did you take this passion within you and translate it into the academic world and trying to find a space in which that could fit? Uh, I'm glad I, for better or worse, because of trauma and the way I kind of grew up, I broke out and claimed the strong sense of individuality as a teen. And so I was definitely like, I'm going to follow my path. And because of all the pain I had experienced, I'm like, either I'm going to do what I really want to do, or I'd rather not live. So it's that extreme. 
Right. And so I'm like, I'm going to make a life that I'm fucking really excited about, or I'm not going to be here. And so I went all in, in, in that route. Um, and as I mentioned, I was diagnosed with ADHD, ADHD at a young age. So it was hard to concentrate in school, even though I was also put in a gifted program, you know, so there's a balance there, but I found out I thrived in areas where I was really excited about the topic. Right. So I just kept putting myself in the situations. I kept taking the classes I loved and then I excelled doing that. And the stuff that wasn't for me, you know, I love learning in general, but there's, there's other parts of a life that I find monotonous, you know, that other people enjoy doing. And so I kind of left it to them. Um, and so as long as I kept staying in this excited state of studying what I really wanted to study, you know, it kept me really, really inspired. And so much came down to consciousness, the big picture, helping the planet, you know, things that ultimately I found really meaningful. Yeah. Did you find any resistance within exploring that path within yourself? Yeah. Any up up as far as like trying to fight your ADHD or the academic? Yeah, yeah so well, with the ADHD, there's also a hyper-focus. If you're really into something, you can hyper-focus. So I can get really into authors, uh, different artists. You know, when I like a topic, I like to just go to the depths of it. Um, the difficulty was living in a culture that still didn't have that paradigm of consciousness pervades everything. We're all interconnected, right? And so as I went through my bachelor's program, I'm you know, working with teachers in a completely different paradigm, a different, more reductionistic, materialistic paradigm. And, you know, that's, that's still the kind of the norm. So once I finished the bachelor's, I was like, I was pretty set. I'm like, I need to start going to institutions still accredited that work with more of a spiritual consciousness centered paradigm. So that's why I moved to the Bay Area to get my master's in conscious transformative studies at JFK. And then see, I took a doctor's of philosophy of cosmology consciousness. It's, it's just because these teachers had some kind of experience or have come to a way that spirit was fundamental you know, but still had a strong scientific bent, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, that made it much easier, you know? And even then, as I started to focus on psychedelics, because they were the most meaningful, powerful thing, I met some resistance from teachers, because even though they were in spirituality as a way that evolution kind of unfolds, because of the cultural norms around psychedelics, um, I had met some resistance. Yeah. So, the thing that kept you going, what would you call that thing that kept you going to like explore this area? I mean, if we want to say soul or connection to truth or a desire for just, you know, deep integrity and authenticity, uh, passion, um, because ultimately it's just having these, I've had hundreds of psychedelic journeys, having these depths of experience and seeing what they did to me, like it, it fueled me. And so when I'm in a world that's filled with other people that see the world differently, it's part of it's like they haven't had those experiences, you know? So there's a sense I can ground into a deep state of being, you know, and, and come from experience, not just faith, you know, but a sense of knowing because of having these, these state experiences that really kind of fueled me, you know? And every time I moved forward, it felt like magic unfolding, you know, like entering just flows of synchronicity many times. Yeah. Um, so what was the the difference of time from like the first time that you experienced psilocybin how long was it until you did it the second time yeah. i took psilocybin at 15 on a school trip um from tucson arizona we went to los angeles i was in theater for four years and it, felt, it seemed like almost everybody in my entire trip like school trip journey like took lsd i was really scared you know um they all took it early in the day and then come like 10 p.m. at night, I felt like a lot of FOMO, like fear of missing out. And I'm like, anybody have something? And somebody had mushrooms. 
and then had like this five, six hour existential journey around like fear that my parents are going to die someday, you know? And then I also saw like the wall break out. It's like matrix code. It was really cool. So I took mushrooms before ever smoking weed or even drinking alcohol. And then there was a, it was more a few years later, you know, so at 17 and then 18, I took it more and it was very expansive and inspiring. Just even the idea that I could take some kind of chemical compound and it changed my perception of reality made me question, well, then how do we really know anything? You know, so even before I really took psychedelics, just their existence created a lot of contemplation in my state. Um, but after that experience of 18, it became because it became more of a spiritual orientation at that point, it became a little bit more frequent. Yeah. Were you able to find people that you connected with that also had that experience or were you guided by a mentor or was this like completely your own journey? You know, that was part of one of the hardest things. You know, I was in Tucson, Arizona. It's a different kind of culture. And even around this time, around 2002, I hadn't met anybody in all my time there that had a big spiritual psychedelic experience. There was one person in the in the physics program that took LSD and kind of had like a bit of an enlightenment moment. And that was awesome to meet one person. Um, and so I had to keep almost all of it to myself, which was painful, where I thought about this experience every day for seven years. And I went out with, had, you know, socially connected with a lot of people. But the thing that I was most intimately connected to, I felt alone in. I did have mentors in the sense of I, I went to, you know, did a lot of schooling and then I connected with some teachers a lot and a specific teacher. We would have lunch almost every week and after that every month. And I still visit him every time I go to Tucson, you know, so after 20 years and he was a priest for 30 years and he was also a marriage and um, family therapist. And so he, he definitely had a lot of wisdom. He didn't have psychedelic experiences. Right. But he is highly intellectual and deeply spiritual. And so he be, he became kind of a mentor. But as far as it came on my psychedelic path, I was alone for a long time until I moved to the Bay Area. Yeah. So how were you integrating those experiences that you had with the psychedelics and then like functioning in your daily life and making the connection of like how to operate? Yeah. I've just always had a fascination with the internal world, right? So I read a lot. I listen a lot of music. I'm a little bit more of an introvert. I'm an INFP when it comes to Meyer Briggs, a four on the Enneagram. And so I couldn't help but constantly contemplate and reflect on my experiences. I mean, still, I, I'm reflecting on experiences for 20-something years ago on a regular basis. And so when I have a big experience, it's like my being kind of chews on it all the time. And then I found a lot of integration and resonance with authors because people around me were having these experiences or deep into kind of spirituality. I did a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. And so whether it was psychedelics or other paths like meditation, I would read books and see their, their kind of transcendental experiences and find resonance in that. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm an INFP also, actually. Uh, I am at, with what you're studying and just your demeanor. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yes. So I want to get into the specifics of your dissertation and like what you were really, really like focusing on supremely in your work um, and what led to that and like everything that you learned. But I mean, as, as much as you can, <laughs> that's a, a loaded question. But yeah, no. you know, the biggest idea I've ever come across, and I know that's a big statement, but I've thought about it for a long time and it still sits within that context, was one put forward by Terrence and Dennis McKenna. And it was this notion that perhaps human evolution was catalyzed with the symbiotic relationship with the psilocybin mushroom. The idea being that in 
you know, where humanity emerged in the savannas of Africa, the psilocybin mushrooms are plentiful in the area that our primate ancestors then early humanity would constantly beating them as they come across them. And that they created rituals, religion, expansion of consciousness, creativity, art, language. Um, the idea being very simple, we know for sure our consciousness expanded. Maybe there was a chemical catalyst in the area. So after I had this huge life-changing experience to see the, what the power of them had, I read Terence's book, Hood of the Gods, at age 19, where he put forward this idea. And so one, the idea had a lot of resonance and made sense just theoretically. But then as I moved to school on 20 years of academia with a huge focus on evolution and personal development, I still hadn't come across a better idea of human evolution that whole time. I found a lot of evidence for it and not one single contradiction where I had to defend this idea You know, in front of a committee. My book's out there now. I haven't found one retort. Right. And the evidence just keeps piling up. And we know from the last 10 years doing MRI studies that psilocybin stimulates what's known as neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. The brain physically begins to grow. 65% of people in the right sudden setting have classical mystical experience. 80% heal from treatment resistant depression for near end of life anxiety, nicotine addiction, alcohol addiction. A lot of people help with OCD. So the benefits are huge. We see indigenous cultures around the world using psychedelics. We see archaeological evidence going back thousands of years all across the planet, psychedelic use, including in caves of Africa. So this idea that perhaps this is why we emerged because of our relationship with the fungi and plant kingdom, one made a lot of sense, but I think could help us re-see humanity in a new way, you know, our deep connection with nature. And given how effective these medicines are, if we kind of see it as our past, it really legitimizes their use. And so hopefully seeing this legitimacy, people can start creating an uh, intentional relationship to them, you know, become healing and uh, deeply connected with themselves and the planet. So I decided to do my dissertation focused on this topic. That's quite a lot yeah, yeah that was a lot. <laughs> and uh so like psilocybin and psychedelics are kind of like trendy right now as far as like how they're being clinically explored and synthetically created so do you feel like there is a difference between using psilocybin in its natural form versus one that's created you know i'm sure just like with anything you're gonna have people split into camps Right. The just to kind of express both camps, you know, the, the more of the naturalists are going to say there's an entourage effect. There's many different compounds in the plant and fungi medicines that, that create a, a holistic sense of an experience in your body that they're, they've been in relationship for a long time. And so there's, a, you know, there's a huge of people just because something naturally evolved in the environment, it's it's better or good. And yay, that's good. That's great. On the other end, when we start looking at synthetics, we're talking, so we make synthetics to the it's the same compound. It's the same compound. It's the same, you know? So even Maria Sabina, who was the curandera that introduced psilocybin to the West through Gordon Watson, she, she held space for the first Westerner. And he wrote about it in Life Magazine in 1957. And it's how we know. He, they later brought her synthetic psilocybin, you know? And she's like, no, it's the same thing, right? And so I'm coming from a more pragmatic view of like, what's actually effective? And so when we start making synthetic compounds, we can really measure the quality of it and the create a sense of consistency with it. With, with psilocybin mushrooms, there's some variations every time you grow up how potent the mushrooms are, right? But if we're going to do something pharmaceutically, we want to actually have strong measured doses and we want to produce at mass scale. So it makes sense. 
And when we look at something like LSD, for example, people generally look at it as a synthetic, but it grows or it's derived from ergot, a type of fungus. It's, it's, it's a mushroom, right? Um, and what we pretty much do is clear away the toxicity parts of ergot. And, and, and take the, the parts, the psychedelics that we can use. So LSD, even though we can call it a synthetic, feels like you're really getting in touch with the natural world. So end of the day, I'm like, if something isn't really harmful and it's helping us, it's okay. Yeah. And it uh, seems that like as these studies evolve and are more developed and become more of a mainstream thing within our society, uh, you're also developing from my research on you, guiding psychedelic journeys for people and uh, being making sure that like safety measures are in place for these experiences. So would you like to talk about that a little? Yeah. Now I've been a part of like taken, mentored in or taught in seven different psychedelic guide trainings. And, you know, there's a difference between just theory and application. Like I love theory and thinking, right? And then there's very much the actual embodied action of helping people heal and it was quite a shift for me for about 12 years, I wanted to be a professor. And partly was I, I took psilocybin on my university campus around 22, 23. And I was like, maybe I'll be a professor. And this kind of voice arose inside, like, are you, are you going to commit to this? And I'm like, sure. Yeah. Like, this seems awesome. I get to keep learning. It's a great kind of movement forward. So I was really focused on that. But as I approached the end of the dissertation and working with this, you know, I became very clear that I learned more from psychedelics, like those like psilocybin, more than I have from humans. It's not that I don't love humans. I read a lot. I take a lot of you know workshops and learning. And so the way I could be most effective isn't necessarily being in front of a classroom, but creating the right container for people to have similar experiences so that nature teaches them. Um, and by far, they've been the most healing modalities in my life and as clinical studies show there aren't really other methods of healing that are as effective. You know, it's not 100% for everybody, but the, but the numbers are really, really high. So I transitioned from the idea of being a professor many years ago and really went full in into this. And um, I've seen over 500 ceremonies taking place of people healing, and it's been phenomenal. It's been magical. I've seen people overcome at times decades of trauma in one day. It's not, it's not a given. You know, the hardest part of the work is this idea coming in with people with like a magic bullet. They want one journey to change their whole life. Honestly, it happens sometimes, but it's not guaranteed. And, it, and it's not effective for 100% of people. There's some people I've given psilocybin to because I do this work legally in Jamaica, and they have no response, right? And so that's the hardest part is dealing with disappointment. Um, but compared, it can, it's pretty low risk if done right. And compared that the statistics are in their favor, it's still a modality worth approaching. Are there specific elements that are incorporated to make sure that it's an effective? I imagine like environment is like a, a big one, set and setting. Um, are there any other factors that are important to this? Yeah, definitely. There's, there's, there's definitely a lot of variables that matter. Um, you know, I would never hold a journey space without, you know, a few prep sessions coming in. And so this idea that you're already kind of bringing a more therapeutic model, Western therapeutic, like you're building a relationship with a person and that really matters to develop a sense of safety and ease. So safety is just paramount and the sense of safety is paramount. So they need to feel safe with you and trust you as a person. And so that takes time. So um, prep sessions leading up to it and also where you're going over their psychological history, their medical history, um, getting to know their deep traumas, their intention of what they want to work on. So it's a process building up to the actual ceremony itself. For the ceremony, definitely dose plays a huge play. You know, as you mentioned, environment. Um, the other variable is, you know, it's, it's hard to overstate, but the quality of the person holding it, you know, so 
you want to create a situation where people feel safer that you're in the room than not, right? So you need to be an authentically in, in, in integrity and safe person where the person can relax. If they don't feel safe, their defenses are, are, are going to be there. They're not going to open up and let go. And then they're just going to have a hard time for six hours and not get anything out of it, right? So just like being in a relationship with anybody, including a therapist, the quality of the therapist matters a lot. And then it's integration, you know, always it's a safety issue. And also it's, it's effective having follow-up sessions, you know, one to two weeks out, at least uh, going over the process, supporting them in the process, you know, people can have paradigm shifting events where they can feel unstable and you need to be there to support them to help them make sense of it. Yeah. Um, as you're guiding them, are you also with psilocybin? No, I'm not. Um, I want to be present and sober. And, and, you know, there's been talks about this in, because some indigenous societies, the classical medicine person, you know, normally known as a shaman takes medicine with them. Um, that being said, I, if we take medicines, it could pull you into your own process, which makes you less present. I don't want to be sitting there focusing on my trauma and my own internal world when I'm there with somebody else. Um, and there's a good book that just came out this last few weeks called Swimming with the Sacred. I think it's Rachel Harris, where she interviewed 15 women that have been medicine holders. And the qualifications to be interviewed for the book is that you had been working in the space for 20 years. So these are like 20, 15 elders that are all females. I'm pretty much unanimous to the else. They don't take medicine. And if you feel like you still have to take medicine um, holding the space, then you just haven't done enough journeys yourself. Like you should be able to know the territory somewhat, right? So the focus is... Part of it is do a lot of self-work before ever coming to play the role of the guide. Yeah. So how many journeys did you go through until you got comfortable with being at that point? Yeah. Uh, hundreds. Um, my path isn't normal, right? So I'm not going to prescribe that as a need. Um, I've felt a depth of curiosity and exploration to understand and consciousness from every angle I can come across since a teen. And so it's been a big part of my soul's path. Um, I don't think most people need hundreds of journeys, right? And it's just the same way like there's astronauts. I want to go explore space. I want to explore consciousness. Um, and so there came a point through that development and everything externally where it felt really right. And then people just started approaching me just out of nowhere, you know? So it, it was kind of very organic unfolding on my end. Yeah. Do you currently or have you done a microdosing approach yeah it's beautiful not currently but i've gone on a lot of seasons i've probably i'm probably altogether well over nine months of microdosing with both psilocybin and lsd and it's phenomenal you know i think it's a great way to start a relationship with these substances there's not much downside um uh, James Fadiman, who really kind of started the macrodose movement, he's been working in the field for 60 years, you know, he did a large underground survey with it with 1500 people, 90% of people experienced some kind of uh, relief from the symptoms of depression, and anxiety, they became more productive, less judgmental, more present, more compassionate, 10% uh, of people had an increase in anxiety. Um, but the anxiety lasts three or four hours. So it's it's like, it's a really worthy payoff if something can really change your life and help and the main downside is you might be anxious for three hours it's worth approaching so for a lot of people that are scared to do a deep journey you know and i definitely recommend doing it with a guide or a professional first but for those people that are scared it's it's a nice route to begin and the way the indigenous people hold it and and my myself also included is like you're developing a relationship with these substances right so it's a very kind of relational oriented context where they see these plants say psilocybin fungi as master teachers 
right? And so you're in relationship with them kind of all the time. And so microdosing is one way to keep that kind of sense of communion going. Right. To stay present with it. Yeah. 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 Yes. Hmm. Um, so I would love to get more into like the academic and consciousness, like parts of it, if you would like to. Uh, so consciousness to you, since you've been like exploring it for a while now, like what does, what is the definition of that for you? Yeah. You know, maybe first, because I've been asked that a lot, right? So first, just to share the vagueness and abstractness of the word. And then I remember looking at many years ago, like what I think it was Webster's Dictionary, and there's like seven different definitions, and they were all so different. And so one thing, it's contextual, right? But for me, it's, it's, um, it's, it's universal in the sense that there's only one consciousness, right? And some big degree, and it's part of the fabric of reality. And people get to that realization, whether through spontaneous mystical experiences, through deep meditation, through Tantra, through psychedelics, is the sense of unity and the sense of oneness, um, that all minds and all hearts across the cosmos are interconnected, right? And we see that even systemically through our ecology, through economics, so everything. It's there's a sense of everything is interdependent and affects everybody else. You know, We also evolve from the same for work, all connected. So it makes sense over the last 13.5 billion years of evolution that everything's somewhat connected. Um, and so that's like the ground of being. And in this sense, uh, building what's known as panpsychism, it's kind of this philosophy that consciousness is in everything and evolves. Even atoms have consciousness to a degree. It's, it's a much more fundamental rudimentary molecule cells. And as the complexity of matter continues to evolve, so does the depth and expansion of consciousness, right? So there's a correlation between the complexity of my nervous system and the consciousness I hold. You know, compared to that of a fish, it still has consciousness. It's just a different degree and depth of consciousness. So, I mean, that's one answer, you know. And then there's a sense of an ecological consciousness of why do plants and fungi like this evolve in pretty much every ecosystem, right? And so, if we look at uh, psilocybin, it comes from the mushroom, right? But the mushrooms are part of a larger body known as mycelium. That's this large underground net that connects all the plants in the environment. It has some kind of consciousness itself. And we've been evolving on top of this long net our entire evolutionary process. And out of that comes this cap and stem formation with the mushroom. And the psilocybin fits in the 5-HT2I serotonin receptor better than our serotonin itself, creating a hyper-connected brain state. So there's even there, you're seeing a sense of consciousness communication happening between the landscape and organisms. And uh, so there's there's so many degrees of consciousness, I guess to say, but consciousness is fundamental and runs through everything. Right. So an enhancement of uh, psilocybin enhances these receptors um, and also like creativity, I feel like would come into play um, during those moments. So can you talk a little bit about creativity and psilocybin and how that connects to consciousness? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I definitely recommend the people listening just Google MRI studies and psilocybin so you can see the visual pictures of what it's like on the placebo, the brain, and on psilocybin, it's, it's quite fundamental. It's um, what they found, psilocybin quiets what they call is the default mode network in the brain, what neuroscientists uh, kind of categorize as the ego sense of self. So when you think me, 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 I, I, specific light network lights up, that network quiets because that network almost acts as a suppression for the rest of your psyche. So as the ego kind of quiets, the whole brain lights up and interconnects. And a lot of those connections actually stay. There's a sense of neuroplasticity. And in many ways, creativity can be defined as the connection between things. You can see connections between things, right? So you feel more creative as your whole brain is interconnecting. And so this sense is the brain is unifying, but then people are having this sense of unity outside with the environment, the state of kind of oneness. 
And they've done a lot of studies, and there will be a lot more, but they've done some studies on uh, creativity and psychedelics, including in the 60s, um, where part of the requirements to come into the study is you had to be like a scientist, an architect, an artist, an engineer, that you had you were stuck on a problem for at least 18 months. That was, that was their criteria. And then you come in and took LSD, and 90% of the people that came into the study after this one day of taking LSD solved their problem that they were stuck in for 18 months. Right. So, so amazing problem solving abilities before and after, you know, during and then after. Um, but we can even see what happened in the 1960s as psychedelics came into the culture. Right. You saw this explosion in art in all its form when it comes to music, when it comes to movies, the um, visual arts explosion, when it comes to political reformation, you know, technological um, renovation. There's a, also a good book called What the Dormouse Said where it really kind of breaks down that the rise of the personal computer and the computer revolution happened in Silicon Valley, that people were taking psychedelics on a regular basis. So there's a huge role, you know, and, you know, Tim Ferriss, the, the well-known podcaster really says, every billionaire CEO oh, I know without exception in Silicon Valley to use psychedelics. So it tends to bring a sense of creativity that we can bring pretty much into any arena. Yeah. And something else, I know you've mentioned that you've explored sexuality too within your work. With, with psilocybin and creativity and sexuality come from the same energy centers. So how do those connections work? Yeah, no, great question. Thanks for bringing that up. I've also taken different seven different pretty big comprehensive tantra trainings. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, just to kind of paint this picture, cause I talked about psychedelics and evolution, but evolution has always moved forward through sexuality. You know, every organism comes because it reproduces with other organisms. So we kind of grow out. So from the big bang till now, there's a sense of sexual energy running through everything. And it tends to become more complex as we move up, especially towards mammals with bigger attachment systems and a greater depth of awareness and sense of love. And so both psychedelics and sexuality seem to lead to a sense of unity, right? So you, with sexuality, you're kind of unifying your psyche and your body with another person even more, right? And just like psychedelics with the environment and the cosmos, and they're both very boundary dissolving. They both tend to move towards a direction of more love, right? And deeper connection with self and other. So there's a lot of commonalities. Um, historically, there would have been a lot more association in the sense where our primates and hunter go their ancestors. So at small doses, they've done with psilocybin, it increases what's known as visual acuity. Depth perception becomes more, so you're more skilled at finding food and seeing prey. A little bit higher doses, there is a stimulation of sexual arousal. Right. So probably would have led to more polyamorous and orgiastic kind of societies, which would have led more copulation and our species group size expanding more and having deeper connections. So, for example, there's a good book called Sex at Dawn, the prehistory of modern sexuality, where they really look at our species compared to that of the bonobos or both the bonobos and the chimpanzees are closest living kind of ancestors that we have genetics really tied with. Bonobos have sex like 14 times a day. Right. So it's a way they mitigate and create social cohesion so it's the way they also bring down tension between each other right um at higher doses our ancestors would have had more like mystical experiences and what i found in these deep kind of universal states is it seems to be very orgasmic right so even in that one experience at 18 that i felt connected with god it felt like every part of my cell was having an orgasm you know it's just <laughs> my entire being was vibrating and so i think sexuality is a deep part of our soul you know, and it's also having done this work in terms of kind of psychedelic therapy, sexual trauma is the worst trauma I've seen, right? So especially early sexual trauma, um, you know, one in four women, one in six men generally, um, it 
especially early on, if it's betrayed by like a family member or somebody close by, it ruins their sense of security, the sense of self, their ability to be intimate with other people, you know, their self-esteem. And it's almost some of the most awesome trauma I've seen healed with the sense of psychedelics because psychedelics have what Stan Groff, the great psychedelic you know, researcher, he says they catalyze holotropic states of consciousness, states that organically move towards wholeness, right? So anything that's been repressed or traumatized or not integrated comes up in the psychedelic state to be integrated, right? So I found them personally to be one of the best tools we have for healing sexual trauma. And and this kind of energy that is present during those moments of like high usage, as you were describing, like, would you say that's like a connection with a kundalini kind of energy? Is that something similar? Yeah, in the sense that it's our life force energy, right. you know, and it's, it's still, it's just, uh, you know, early teenage psychedelic experience made me realize how much of a sexual being I am that we all are. And since, of course, I had masturbated before that and had sexual thoughts, but I could feel my energetic system come to life. And with that came a sense of power and wholeness and ease and pleasure in my body, right? And so, you know, one, per one perspective is like, this is your temple, you know, in a very kind of divine way. And the more you could feel pleasure, the more you're kind of in this divine, heavenly, excited state. Um, so yes, it awakens a sense of power and life force in your being. There's a possibility of that highly. So speaking of wholeness, since you finished your PhD and just released this book, um, do you feel like a sense of completion within yourself having gone through that academic journey? Highly. You know, it feels amazing. It feels, um, I would like a relief. Um, I felt like I wanted to write a book since I was a teen and it felt like something I needed to do. Like I wouldn't have felt peace until I did. And I also decided by 18, I wanted uh, to get the doctorate. And so it was like the completion of a 20 year journey, you know, climbing this really huge mountain that for some reason I just was set on climbing and then I could finally let go. And I feel like I've accomplished now most of the things I've wanted to in the last 20 years. And so I, I can relax, you know, I feel like I did what I needed to do. And of course there's a lot more I want to do, but like, there's a lot less pressure inside of my being. Yes. And like kudos to you for taking your academic research and like implementing it into the world because a lot of those articles just like sit within a library <laughs> and get dusty and are not touched for by anyone. So like I appreciate that. That was one of the main reasons to kind of which I love academia to transition out. I remember reading like every you know, peer-reviewed article that comes out, you know, that academic try generally get 1.2 readers. So it's like, you do all this work, barely anybody reads it. And especially in terms of dissertations, you spend years to write something and part of the qualifications, it has to be something novel that you're bringing to the academic community. And then you share it with your dissertation committee, which is like three people. And then that's the end from a lot of dissertations. And I'm like, you just did years of research that could have went to help the public. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't. And so I think it should be built into the system that it should be contributed to society in some way. So I think it's a loss of the academic society where all this work happens, but it just goes nowhere, really, in terms of like it doesn't integrate into society. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Um, and putting it out for the public like is bringing rewards to you also. It's getting very well received. Um, so like how how is that making you feel about like everything? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, great in the sense of I think that's the natural balance of things to some kind of equilibrium. If you do keep giving, you do keep getting, right? It, it makes sense. Um, and it felt like something my being needed to do. I was kind of focused on how can I be of service to the world in the best way I know how, you know? And this 
you know, I went through a lot of different things of what could be possible solutions. And when it came down to it, it was changing consciousness was pretty fundamental because it affects everything else. And so this was the best way I could contribute. So it, it felt worthy to put my time into. And the reception has been amazing. You know, um, it was a lot of work, you know, so I don't know yeah. if it balances out because it was, it was, it was years of work. Um, but the, the reception has been good and it does warm my heart. Yeah. Um, what's the biggest thing that you learned about yourself by going through that process of like writing a book and releasing it? You know, it's something I knew was there. It's just more solid. It's, it's like perseverance. You know, mm -hmm. it was hard. There was resistance in a very sad way from some people in my committee because it's a topic they didn't resonate with as much at the time. Psychedel like right now, as you mentioned, psychedelics is becoming really trendy. It's all in the news. It's a forefront. When I started the project, it wasn't really as much at all. And so it seemed that my school at the, parts of my school at the time, my school also first opened the first above ground psychedelic uh, guide, like training, right? But some of my teachers were trying to distance themselves from psychedelics because I think maybe they felt some kind of job security stuff and it, it, it wasn't as in. Now I bet they feel different, you know? Um, and so it was hard to meet that resistance. And then, you know, to people of the open book, it's like highly referenced. You know, there's like 400 unique references, 700 fucking footnotes. Like it was a lot of work. And so it was daily discipline you know, of, of years of hyper reading and focusing and where I had to kind of sacrifice a lot of parts of my life to really focus to write it. Uh, so now I just, I just more trust in myself that I can pull through. Yeah. So what are you enjoying now in your life that you weren't able to in your PhD program? <laughs> so while I was, when I went through the entire doctorate and then when I got to the dissertation phase was just writing this book, I also took three trainings at the same time that were two years long. So I did Hakomi, two years of somatic psychotherapy training. I did an underground Mazatec mushroom training and assisted for two years the psychedelic certificate training at CIS. And so that took three weekends a month, right? On top of writing my dissertation for two years. So it's like my social life went down, everything went down and I just were focused on trainings and writing for two years. And so I had to repress a lot of parts of myself to make it happen. And it's, it's but it's created an awesome foundation for the rest of my life. Um, and so I graduated, this ended as COVID began. So I was like, fuck, I was like being in a hermit mode for so long. I graduate, I did my dissertation defense. And I think the shutdown happened four or five days afterwards. And yeah. so then I had to move back into hermit mode. So I put all my energy into my practice, getting the book published and so on. But over the last year, year and a half, moved a lot more into socializing, going out to festivals, a lot of connection, you know, so I had to give up a lot of connection, but now I'm focusing a lot on my relationships. Yeah. yeah. Give and take. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so if people would like to explore your book or anything about you, um, perhaps like work with you or uh, because I feel like you do some consultation work and offer some other services, uh, where can we guide them to? Oh, yeah. The website's um, psychedelicevolution.org. Um, you'll definitely see my services, other videos, uh, access to my email and so on. Um, my book's on all the platforms. You know, it's distributed by Penguin Random House, all largest distributors. So Amazon, Barnes Noble, Target, and also have an audiobook on it. Um, the publisher, North Atlantic Books, held an audition to, for the narrator and definitely picked what I thought was the best one there. And so it's it's the kind of voice that like you'd listen to anything he was reading. Um, oh, yeah. So so that's on Audible and all the other platforms also. Excellent. So psychedelic evolution 
where do you see your psychedelic evolution going in the next yeah. few years? Yeah, I get, I get, I mean, yeah, I just say that the title of the book is The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness, Evolution on the Planet, Integral Approach. And my personal, definitely keep unfolding, um, going to be leading more group journeys for, for psychedelics, I mean, for the rest of my life to some degree in, in, in many different kind of modalities and ways it can express itself. And probably this year, begin writing another book. I wanted to take some space because it's such a deep, long commitment. Um, but there's another book I, that's been brewing inside of me for like four or five years, like that started halfway through writing this other one, or I'm like, okay, this just needs to be its own thing. Um, so going to create the internal and external space uh, to start working on that project. Excellent. So I have one last question that I asked, mm -hmm. kind of like wrap up the conversation, unless there's something else that you would love to say that we haven't covered. <laughs> please no uh, please ask away I'm curious what's here for you so if your inner voice had a billboard what would it say to the world yeah you know that love's the most intelligent force in the universe you know and I feel a lot of our society and in sense of like it unifies things inside and outside you know even when it comes to trauma and a lot of people I work with it's, it comes down to parts of themselves weren't loved or that were kind of uh, betrayed or pushed away. So they're not integrated. But love and deep acceptance integrates all the parts inside, right? And same with outside. What I see happens a lot of time is what people have what's called the inner critic or superego or like the sense of like they're judging and critiquing themselves and others. And that creates shame and therefore division inside and outside. So I think if we can move towards non-judgment, then we move into deeper connection and start seeing things more clearly. And so a lot of people also have this kind of war between their mind and their heart, which is kind of silly, you know, um, it, it definitely, for me, it's obvious the mind's here to serve the heart. Um, and even when you think about like processes like the soul, it's very heartfelt, you know, and so uh, to really encourage them to be deeper into that feeling as much as possible and to make decisions from that place, you know, and so it's, it's, it's like loving themselves and others. So it's not saying like self-betray yourself and self-abandon just to be of service or go into like, you know, codependent relationships by self-sacrificing. It's like, no, love yourself, you know, mm -hmm. other people, and then the whole, the planet, move into deeper and deeper trust with the universe. Yeah. I love that. Sometimes I feel like, like talking about these subjects feels kind of like like a hallmark greeting card sometimes but like if, if you've really experienced it then like you can really like understand what that means so. i mean it's so cliche you know you know here in the beatles like love's all you need i don't think love's all you need you know but but it's but it, it's there because it's true most cliches are true yeah right? like that's why they're there you that's know why. so it's it's a, it's there's that sense in the psychedelic state of and even when people go to meditation it's like oh my god the truth was in my face the whole time i was just blind to it that's a sense you know like it's it's all here you know so yeah it is <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your wisdom um and your story thank you and it was an honor to be talking to you and be here on your platform thank you so much for joining me this week if you're listening and you like what you hear please consider subscribing and rating this podcast as it really helps get this podcast out to other people who might be interested in hearing it but don't know about it yet and also if you'd like to contact me or reach me, you can reach me at unconditioningpodcast at gmail.com or unconditioningpodcast on Instagram. Thank you so much. And until next time, stay tuned in.
to you.